This hour of Ring of Fire is brought to you by the Goldwater Law Firm, a stellar organization. Visit them online, bobgoldwater.com. Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio. Today on Ring of Fire, we'll take a look at everything we learned about the GOP's voter suppression techniques with journalist Brenton Mock. Eric Bowler is going to be here from Media Matters to tell us why the GOP doesn't have a Mitt Romney problem. And in fact, they have a Fox News problem, a big, ugly Fox News problem. John Amato from Crooks and Liars will tell us about Grover Norquist's crusade to push America over the cliff financially. We'll hear from Liz Crossan and Mike Lazau about two very important environmental cases being argued before the U.S. Supreme Court next week. You can follow Ring of Fire on Facebook or on Twitter at Ring of Fire Radio, and you can keep up with the latest progressive news on our website at ringoffireradio.com. If you want to help support Ring of Fire, subscribe to our weekly podcast, or you can sponsor an hour of our show. You can sign up for both online at ringoffireradio.com. Traditional media is dead. You can't trust them to report the stories and tell all the facts that actually matter to progressives. And that's why every week we start the program Ring of Fire with the Ring of Fire News. It's an analysis of the stories that matter the most to progressives. These are stories that you won't hear just anywhere. Bobby, where it comes to politics, I guess I feel the same way that I felt the day after Thanksgiving, two days after Thanksgiving, four days after Thanksgiving. You know, I had enough turkey and dressing. I'm really, I'm really exhausted on politics. But I, I think one thing that, that struck me is uh, I was in Philadelphia not long ago, right after the election, and this common theme uh, surfaced. It was virtually everybody I talked to about the presidential election talked about the backlash effect on the Republican, the backlash effect on their effort to keep people from voting. It was powerful. I heard stories about lifelong Republicans who were just so angry that, uh, that this GOP corruption was taking place that they actually cast votes for Obama. I saw, you know, you hear stories about people who've never been active. They were galvanized. They were motivated. And they were rational thinkers who said, look, what's happening here tests really the boundaries of democracy. And so they got out, and they had never done that before. They they were on the street. They, were, they waited in line nine hours. They had never done that before. And so I think it was powerful. It's the same thing that happened in Maine when Maine tried to come by. And uh, you might remember last year they, they tried to sneak through a, a new law that revoked the right for same-day registration, the same thing Scott Walker's trying to do right now in Wisconsin. But there was such a backlash that a referendum of two-to-one majority really humiliated the governor and the legislature. So I'm hoping there's some legs to that. What's your thought on it, Bobby? Well, I'm watching what Scott Walker is doing in Wisconsin, and this is their strategy. This is the Rove strategy. It's the strategy all over the country. Wisconsin was actually the first state to have same-day registration, and it increased voting, you know, all of the states, there's 11 states now that have it. They all followed Wisconsin's example, and they have the highest majorities of 
voters of any states in the country. Those 11 states have the largest vote per capita in the country. And it increases, on average, it increases the votes by, you know, something like eight or nine points of how many people are voting. The thing that bothers Republicans is that a disproportionate number of the people who vote on same-day registration are young people and they're minorities. And those are people that usually vote Democratic. So you're seeing efforts in all of those states to now get rid of same-day voting. As you were talking, I was thinking of a conversation that I had with my 11-year-old son, Aiden, when we were driving to school in the morning, and he was asking me, why is it that Republicans control the House? Because that's population-based. He's studying the Constitution and mm-hmm. the writing of the Constitution in school, and he, he understands how Republicans could control the Senate because that is based, it's regionally based. It's based every state, you know, North Dakota has fewer people in its entire population than we have on a single city block in New York, but it has two senators. And that's, it was designed that way to make sure that the regions didn't lose their voices even when they didn't have large populations. But he said, you know, it was a very astute observation and it's historically correct the House should be controlled by Democrats because that's population controlled and there's many more Democrats than there are Republicans. But they were gerrymandered out. Right. And I had to explain to him something that the New York Times reported on, luckily, the day before, where they said that in 24 states, because of uh, the strategy by Roe that targeted corporate money over the past 15 years to take over state legislatures, which are very easy to dominate the state political landscapes, because a few thousand dollars can win a legislative race in states like North Dakota, etc. In 24 states, the state is completely controlled by Republicans. That means the governor and both houses of the legislature are controlled by one party. In only 13 states, are controlled by Democrats. So those 24 states have gerrymandered their districts and rewritten their districts so that they'll put all the blacks into one district and then they'll make all the other districts lily white. And in that way, they can ensure that their congressional delegation is virtually all white and all Republican. You know, Bobby, Bobby, one thing that Rove intended to do here, uh, if you go back and look at this historically, he said, look, there was nothing there was nothing predictable about what would happen at the federal level. He said that's you know, that's likely to change. He, He he you know, he and a lot of other leadership saw that there was demographic changes. But what he said was, if we go in and we take state by state, we can change the courts, okay? We can ch- we can gerrymander, we can change the school system, the education system, we can change the tax system, we can change the civil law system, we can change immigration, we can uh, just obliterate teacher unions. And he said, do that state by state, and before you know it, you don't really care much about what the federal system's done because you're controlling all the judges state by state. They're making rules that, that you know, are abhorrent to any anything that looks progressive. They are gerrymandering to where the even if the party becomes a minority party, they still promote themselves forever. And so, you know, the thought was the state strategy, it was really kind of a variation. They, they moved away from the southern strategy and said, let's, let's look at state strategy, and now it's working. 
24 states, as you point out, will be completely controlled by Republicans. And we see it. Uh, w- we see what uh, Scott Walker's doing. We see what uh, uh, Rick Scott's doing. And it, they're obliterating democracy in those states. Yeah, I just looked it up here. There's actually an article by Scott Keyes and Think Progress where he says that Election Day registration boosts turnouts 7 to 14 percentage points. And the states like Minnesota, Maine, that those 11 states have the highest turnout in the nation. And it's not by chance. It's because they have same-day registration. That's what democracy is supposed to be about, trying to get as many people to participate in government as possible. We have to take a quick break. Let's pick up with this topic when we come back and what needs to be done. I really think it's a time for a federally standardized procedure that avoids a lot of this problem. We'll be right back. Back on Ring of Fire, I'm Mike Pabantonio. Right now, Bobby Kennedy and I are talking about the buried stories of the past week that the traditional media either missed or underreported. And don't forget, you can always get the latest news and commentary that matters to progressives on our website at ringoffireradio.com. Bobby, the, the numbers really speak for themselves. You know, going into the election and going into this whole, um, what are the, you know, this analysis of what are the results of the right-wing state strategy. There's a lot of speculation, but now we see it. And we understand that the theory is who the hell cares what happens on the federal level. We're just going re- to retake government state by state. And that's what they've done. They were successful with it. And, and as you pointed out, it's less expensive for them. They have a good plan. But there's some things that we need to, that Obama needs to think about. He needs to do it. He doesn't need to think about it. He's not in there long enough to do a lot of thinking and you know, uh, consensus building at this point. But something that has to happen is there has to be this effort to federally standardize procedures. I mean, election day procedures, polling place procedures, trained worker procedures, uh, registration procedures, they all need to be standardized in a way that it, at the very least, we need to hear the Republicans pushing back on it and making it, you know, showing really who they are. Well, you know, my senator uh, from New York, Kirsten Gillibrand and one of my oldest friends, John Lewis, who was one of the leaders of the civil rights movement and his congressman from Georgia, are actually sponsoring a legislation in the House and in the Senate called the Voter Empowerment Act, which would guarantee easier voter registration in all the states, including guaranteeing Election Day registration in every state and abolishing some of the or outlawing some of the procedures that have been used by Republicans to purge voter rolls and to do all these other gimmicks that stop people from voting. Well, we have a window, and my point is uh, they need to get busy in this window. Bobby, let me, let's, change, let's change some topics here. The environmental stories 
this week, you know, we, we're inundated with environmental stories. There's always corporate America or bad government trying to diminish our environment, trying to, to trample on the commons one way or another. But these stories that are coming up this week, I, I thought it was a pretty compelling story when you have the U.N. climate chief saying to the United States that your climate inaction is what has brought us things like Hurricane Sandy. And if you don't get busy, we will reach a place of no return. Same thing that Bill McKibben has been talking about for so long. Give me your thoughts. Uh, you know, Hurricane Sandy, $50 billion worth of, dam of damages. It, it clearly showed how vulnerable America was uh, to the global warming crisis. But nevertheless, you have the U.S. in this tepid this tepid position, not taking any affirmative steps to really change this. Well, you know, and, and Bill McKibben actually did a huge public service by outlining the problem in a way that's very, very comprehensible and accessible and easy to understand at Rolling Stone magazine. And actually, shockingly, Forbes magazine kind of summarized the the argument in its latest issue. And, and here's McKibben's argument that the oil companies are sitting on 27 trillion dollars of proven oil gas and coal reserves and that actually that number has actually already been valued in the marketplace because if you buy shell stock or exxon stock you are buying the oil that is in the ground and that they intend to get out of the ground they're saying we're sitting on a trillion dollars of proven reserves and when you buy a share in Exxon, you're counting on the fact that they're going to be able to get those reserves out of the ground. So if you took the, that $27 trillion of proven oil reserves and burned it, it would create 2,795 gigatons of carbon. Mm. Well, the, well, the, world's, the, that, world's, yeah, the, world's, the world's scientists have said that the maximum amount of carbon that you can put into the atmosphere and still have civilization would be 500 gigatons. Mm. So this is more than five times. What they call the red line. The, the what red they call the red line. That would, that means more than two degrees Fahrenheit this century. Um, and if you burn all of it, there's really, you've destroyed civilization. And so these are really criminal enterprises. They're, they're on record. And, you know, one of the other points that McKibben makes is, they know that even though they've had this $100, 200000000 million propaganda campaign to persuade people that global warming doesn't exist, at the same time, they have other arms of their organizations that are bidding for leases in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, which is still covered with ice. Because they know it's going to melt. Because yeah. they know it's going to melt, yeah. and they're already trying to get So they know that global warming is happening, but... They're denying it to the rest of us. They're lying. And this is just that, you know, this is the cigarette companies. Once again, you know, Bobby, you've got, you've a, got the cigarette a, companies were killing one out of every four of their customers. And then lying to the American product, public. Yeah. And lying. And they had the Tobacco Institute, which was abolished. It was literally given the corporate death penalty in this country. Well, you know, you know, Bobby, you know, as you know, we handled that national cigarette, cigarette litigation. And when you go back and look at what they were doing. They, they, they is early and, and this is the same analogy. The analogy is you would see a document and the document says 
this will kill people by way of heart disease and cancer. Okay, that's 1932. 1933, we know that it's true, but we have to go out and we have to buy a bunch of biostitutes to create literature, to create doubt. They said, they said the main goal we have is to create doubt. And that's, that's what McKibben, and that's what you've always said about the, about the industry. It is this idea of doubt just simply allows them a little more time to extract that $17 trillion, that $17 trillion worth of oil and gas from, from reserves, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, so th these are really criminal enterprises. And actually, BP this week on that issue pled guilty to record criminal penalties in front of a U.S. federal court, $4.5 billion, the largest, the largest criminal fine, which is $1,256,000,000, the largest criminal penalty in the history of the world. Actually, you know what? Let me point something out. That's what the media is saying, but that's completely wrong. The biggest criminal was Rick Scott right down here in Florida. His company got hit for $1.7 billion from stealing money from taxpayers by way of Medicaid. But it, it, it's amazing that nobody did any digging on that. But I've seen, I'm seeing that everywhere. This is the biggest because it came from the Department of Justice. And I want to talk about We have to take a quick break. But I want to talk about how badly the Department of Justice has dropped the ball on this whole BP story. I'm with Bobby Kennedy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio here with Bobby Kennedy and Sam Cedar. Remember, if you want to help support Ring of Fire, you can sponsor an hour of our show. You can sign up online at ringoffireradio.com. It's your support that helps keep us on the air. And now let's get back to Ring of Fire news of the week. Bobby, we saw the BP PR team act like they really, really took it on the chin with this $4.5 uh, in penalties they pled guilty to some criminal misconduct, and the attorney general said, oh, gee, this is, this is huge. You know, this is massive. Well, no, it's not massive, because what they did is they indicted two, uh, two BP supervisors that were aboard the, the Deepwater Horizon during the disaster. Those are the scapegoats. The scapegoats. They've let everybody else go. They haven't even discussed what people like Dick Cheney were doing to put all this into place. There, there, this, is, this is another whitewash. It's an, this is not much different than what we saw Eric Holder do uh, when, when Exxon stole $18 trillion from the American public. So you, you look at this, you say, oh, my God, they're paying all this money. This is nothing. They made, 30, they made $38 billion last year, Bobby. 
This is a company that said, oh, well, we had to sell $35 billion worth of assets. Well, take a look at what they sold. I mean, it was all loser stuff. But the point is this. We get sucked into this again. Like, they've really paid for this. Like, this, they've, we've really punished these criminals. None of the white-collar criminals responsible for this have been on the front page because Eric Holder will not allow it to happen. Simply put. Well, once again, one of the the great heroes of this story is, is Congressman Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who you know who went on record and said just what you're saying, and he said these guys are genuine criminals and they should be going to jail. And he he said, "quote BP lied to me, they lied to the people of the Gulf, they lied to their shareholders, and they lied to all Americans." Now they pled guilty to manslaughter and they pled guilty to a number of other criminal 23 criminal counts but as you say the only person who's looking at jail time are those two guys who were on the rig and who were trying to save their guys right they're fall guys but you know what pap i want to talk because there's a related story about exxon spill in nigeria oh yeah yeah this is you know the destruction that this spill has caused is at least as bad as what BP did in the Gulf, but you're not reading about it because it's in the Niger Delta. Yeah, most and, people have never heard this story. Lay it out for us a little bit. Well, you know, Exxon has a pipe that blew. It, it had a valve that blew in the Niger Delta, and it is spilled. It has a 20-mile oil slick that is killing fish. You have people who are submerged in oil. And I just want to I want to read this from the Reuters report. You have a fisherman called Edit Aquino, and he says, quote, this is the worst spill in this community since Exxon started its operation in the area, which was 50 years ago. The fishermen cannot fish any longer, and there's no other way that we can survive. Exxon's response is this, quote, we apologize for the inconvenience. <laughs> for the inconvenience. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, that that's the word they use. We apologize for the inconvenience. Yeah. There's a UN report. These guys, these oil companies in Africa are really armed criminal enterprises. They hire small armies to exterminate people who are on in their way to protect their their drilling platforms and their pipelines because there's, you know, there's different groups in countries like the Congo and Nigeria and Angola that are struggling to control this. My brother, who runs a nonprofit oil company, he used to fly into Angola all the time and he got some of his oil, which he distributes at cost to poor people in the United States. But he used to fly into Shell's impoundment in Angola. And at that time, Shell's impoundment was protected by an army of mercenaries who were all Cuban army troops. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is, you know, this is the ultimate in kind of capitalistic feudalism. Well, first of all, you have it. it, Look, you have lawless mobsters that are moving into third world and have been. This is not a new story. My God, this story has been going on. Noam Chomsky has been talking about Howard Zinn talked about it, you know, Chalmers Johnson have been trying to get the American public to understand what happens in in these other countries connects directly up to what we're what we're seeing right now. We've simply become that new extraction point, Bobby. You see, when it happened, the, the very fact this you raised this story about Nigeria about Nigeria in this Exxon spill. 
Well, first of all, th- this was the second major spill near an Exxon facility just in the last three months. I mean, major, major spill. So it doesn't happen in our backyard. It happens over there. So, so we have a disconnect. But what we don't understand, and this, this is, it just makes me crazy that we can't get this idea out. We have become the new target for the same people who used to extract from third world countries. Well, now we've simply become another target. People think of Exxon as an American company. They say, oh, well, they're here. Well, they're not here. They don't have a home. Shell doesn't really have a home. BP really doesn't have a home. Think of these lawless, roving thugs going place to place in the world, extracting what they want, and then simply getting away with it. And that's what we see happening right here. The BP story is the best example of it. Well, yeah, and it is, you know, it is, it's colonialism. And they have absolutely, according to a UN report in August last year, the, the UN just savage the government of Nigeria and the and the multinational oil companies for 50 years of oil pollution that the report says has absolutely devastated the Ogani land region. These are where the Ogani tribe lives and they can't eat, they can't feed themselves, they can't grow things in the ground, their children are poisoned, the cancer rates are through the roof. These are human beings whose lives are being destroyed so that we can have cheap oil in this country and these oil companies are are destroying the planet at the same time. This is a criminal enterprise. And the worst thing about it, again, I just can't stress this enough, we don't recognize the criminal enterprise is right here. It's It's right here. We are now the target. And they're extracting, they're externalizing all of their all of their costs on you know polluting our water, polluting our air. And finally, you have McKibben, who we talked about in the other segment. You've got McKibben that says, "Look, it is time to treat them like criminals." Would you allow your college, for example? Would you say, Yale? You know, it's okay if you invest into mobster enterprises. And, and McKibben is going college to college and entity and entity and say, take the money away from the criminal mobsters. Take it away from them. The only way to make them say, okay, we get it. We can't destroy your planet for the next three years, for, forever. We can't destroy your planet and there not be some repercussions. And McKibben is the guy out front. Are there any other leaders on this, Bobby, that you— Well, I, you know, what we should be doing is—and Bill— uh, is doing a really great job of mobilizing the colleges who are and 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 trying to get them to over a five-year period to end investments in funds that invest in oil that have oil company assets and and that will hurt the oil industry. What we really need is the pension funds to get out of it. The state pension funds where the teachers' uh, money goes and where the you know where the Calsters and Calpers and New York Commons and you know the New York City's workers' pensions go. Those are the big investors, and you know they they should be doing ethical investing the same as they did for South Africa. They said we we got them oh, all to example. say. Yeah. We're not going to invest in anybody who invests in this system of apartheid. And it's one of the things that brought down the apartheid government and ushered in Nelson Mandela. Well, we need to do the same thing today by recognizing that oil is crime. Oil is theft. Oil is murder. 
oil and carbon are going to destroy civilization. They're enemies of democracy. They're enemies of the people. And they need to be treated like that. And we need and, to put and, them and, behind and every, bars. And every responsible world leader is telling us that right now. The UN climate change chief calls us out almost every month saying, look, when is America going to do something? We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Tell me something I don't know Cause we've been met sometimes before Make it up as we go Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio here with Bobby Kennedy. Right now, we're talking about some of the most important news stories of the week that progressives need to be aware of. Bobby, like I said, you know, there's so many stories out there. It seems like one right after another from an environmental standpoint. There's so many big stories that are that are taking place. Uh, you had a piece that ran in the New York Times this week. It's an example of what we're talking about. Well, yeah, you know, they, they, it was an op-ed piece that was co-authored by myself and by David Crane. And David Crane is the CEO of NRG, which is the biggest independent power provider producer in the country. And the thing that's interesting about it is that David Crane is agnostic about what kind of energy source he uses. Uh, he wants to use the energy source that is best for his shareholders. And he owns a coal plant, he owns a nuke plants, he owns gas plants, everything. But what he says is that in 20 states, the best thing he can do, the best investment he can make with a dollar is not to build a gas plant, even though we have $2 gas or a coal or oil plant, but it's to put in solar panels because solar panels are so cheap today that you can literally generate electrons and deliver them to the public cheaper than you can any of the incumbents. And David Crane has built huge solar displays on the top of the Meadowlands Stadium, of the Jets Stadium, of the uh, of the Philadelphia Eagles Stadium, and he and, and, and box stores and other big flat places across the country. He wants to start putting them on what, what kind of results do those have, Bobby? Give me what 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 give me an example of what kind of results Well I mean I, I can tell you this that you know, one of the companies that, that we started at Vantage Point, which is the, the firm that I, the venture capital firm that I'm involved with, we started a, a company called BrightSource. And BrightSource produces solar power from a solar thermal plant, which is not PVs, but it's a, it's a way to, to harness solar energy. We're building today the biggest power plant in America. It's 2.7 gigawatts. It's about three times the size of a nuclear power plant. A nuclear power plant cost $15 billion a gigawatt to construct. Our plant cost only $3 billion a gigawatt. And then and a coal plant cost about $3 billion. A gas plant cost about $3 billion. But once, you build, once we build our plant, it's free energy forever because the photons are hitting the earth every day for free. And all we have to do is build the infrastructure that harvests them, puts them in the line, and gets them to the public. 
So once you build that coal plant, now you got to go cut down the Appalachian Mountains, ship them across the country in rail yards, warp the rails, destroy the roads, burn the coal, poison every freshwater fish in the country with mercury, kill 60,000 people a year from re respiratory illness, and, and 10 million asthma attacks, a million lost work days, and flatten the Appalachians. Once you build an oil plant, now you've got to go over to Saudi Arabia, punch holes in the ground, bring up the oil, a genuflect to the sheiks who despise democracy and are hated by their own people, refine the oil expensively, ship it across the Atlantic with a military escort, get in periodic wars that cost trillions of dollars to defend our oil infrastructure, then spill it all over the Gulf, spill it over all over Valdez, then burn it and poison everybody. So the big costs happen after you build the plant. With our plant, which costs the exact same as a coal or an oil plant, once you build it, it's free energy forever. <laughs> and that's what we ought to be doing. Great and, and, you well, know. you know what's interesting, Bobby? This is what the this is what the UN climate chief has been screaming at. He says, look, the United States is allowing other countries to pursue technology that is going to be hugely beneficial in the future. We're sitting back and we're being talked into passing on the technology because of the oil in industry, I, it, it, which is all going to be obsolete. The private sector, they have got to be feeling the pressure of this to catch up with the rest of the world already. So the United States not only strengthens, uh, you know, it, 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 it has strengthened its participation in global climate change on a positive way if we do these things. And the problem is this is what we've been talking about for years now. Now, here's where, I, here's where I'd like to land this. We got Obama there is the president of the United States who needs, you know, there was not one mention of this in the debates at all. There was no mention about the importance of climate change. He now has the bully pulpit. I'm not suggesting it can all be done, but by God, we need to start seeing something coming out of the White House on this issue. From an economic standpoint, don't you? I mean, just purely economic standpoint. Well, that you know, that's what David Crane says and in, in this op-ed piece in the New York Times is that, 95% of his revenues come from the poles and the wires that we saw blown over. That's the third year in the row. Okay, we got Irene. We got the Halloween storm last year. And on the exact same day, my kids haven't had a Halloween for two years because there's been no power and there's been live wires all over the road. And every time that happens, the local utilities call in linesmen from all across the country. We had 28 states in my town from California, from St. Louis, from Oklahoma this morning, I saw a work gang. So they come, they're paid double overtime, they're flown in, paid double overtime, their equipment is shipped in, brought in later, and we repair this whole system of poles and wires that we know is going to get blown over next year. Mm -hmm. And instead, if we had solar panels on people's roofs, when there was a storm light and the people could legally hook that up to their own homes and power their homes, which in a lot of states like New York, you can't do because the utilities won't let you do it. We, you know, all these people who are, who are still going without power would have power in their homes. Well, one thing we're going to start seeing right now, you've got the climate negotiations that are taking place in, in Qatar. I mean, it, we have bet we had better show some leadership this time around. I, I, the rest of the world is simply going to lead us. I guess we have one option. You know, uh, Texas wants to secede from the United States. Uh, you know, I guess we ought to invade, get all their oil before they do. It's closer. You know, we can go in strategically, take all their oil, let them secede, 
uh, I think the world would be a better place. Uh, you know what? Everybody should go see that this new Steven Spielberg movie about Abraham Lincoln and see what the Republican Party used to represent. And, you know, it was the party that held this country together <laughs> no. when the racists <laughs> and slave owners wanted to secede. Now the Republican Party has become the party of secession. Well, the oil company, so, the oil companies, really. The, the corp, well, corporate America wants Texas to secede. I well, mean, you know, I mean, our listeners may not know this, but there, you know, this is all over the blogs and all over the news that there are serious discussions now in Texas by elected officials about seceding from the union and they've got petitions that have gotten tens of thousands of signatures that actually the Obama administration is now legally obligated to respond to yeah to respond to Texas I mean, Na- is- it's Texas nationalism for God's sake so so what they're saying is you know the only people who don't want us to secede are the liberals and we're self-sustaining they need to peace of, peacefully grant us this right to withdraw uh, you know, in course, you got people in Austin saying, hell no, please don't make us be a part of these boneheads in Texas. Don't. And all, all the Hispanics in the Rio Grande Valley, you know, who, uh, who do not have the same vision, uh, who's the only protection they've got is the federal government. Yeah, I mean, they're laying out the arguments. One <laughs> argument I saw, hey, our economy is about, you know, 20 percent larger than Australia. We can stand alone. We're a completely self-sustained economy. Well, great. You know, but first first to you know on this oil issue let's go get their oil invade texas say yeah okay it's time for you it doesn't get any crazier than it's getting right now and why is it that it always originates in texas alabama mississippi georgia south carolina it is the entire confederacy of dunces bobby we're out of time i'm sorry there's so much to talk about thanks for joining me thank you pat we'll see you next week yep Coming up on Ring of Fire, journalist Brenton Mock from Color Lines is going to join me to talk about everything we learned about the Republican Party's voter suppression plans this year, what we need to do to prevent it from happening again. That's just ahead. Stay with us right here on Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio, and you've been listening to a free sample of Ring of Fire Radio. If you'd like to listen to the full show, subscribe to our weekly podcast at our website at ringoffireradio.com. It's your support that helps keep us on the air.